Right now, there are teams of scientists all around the world working on de-extinction or, or bringing back animals from extinction. This is remarkable and, and realistic. And today's author, Beth Shapiro, is one of the leading ancient DNA experts in the world. Her book, How to Clone a Mammoth, describes the science of de-extinction, the, the ethical and the technological hurdles, and how close we actually are to having mammoths roaming the world once again. Beth Shapiro, thank you very much for taking out your time to have a chat with me today. Happy to. Um, I guess, first of all, uh, let's just cut to the, the disappointing thing <laughs> for me, is we're not going to get dinosaurs. No, dinosaurs are, are much too old. Uh, well, I say that, except, you know, they're, they're much too old to have any DNA recovered from them. We're never going to be able to find a dinosaur bone or piece of dinosaur anything that contains any biological material. They're fossils. Every bit of biological material has been replaced by rock, which means that we can't use that information to reconstruct their DNA sequence. It might be possible to infer, using a computer, what the DNA sequence of a dinosaur might have looked like by comparing all their closest relatives, like alligators and crocodiles and all the living birds, which are, of course, dinosaurs, avian dinosaurs, and reconstructing what a, a kind of dinosaur genome sequence might have looked like. But it won't be exactly like any specific dinosaur, because all those lineages are lost and extinct. Um, you, you talk about one of, I guess, the first significant challenges for scientists going into this de-extinction, and that was just to agree on what to bring back. So how, how does that work? Like, who gets to decide what, what we get? At the moment, there isn't any any mechanism by which people are deciding what to do. You know, people have just been talking about what species might be possible to bring back, might be uh, less ethically challenging or ecologically, uh, there might be a compelling reason to think about bringing them back. I, I think the way it goes right now, you know, there, there's no money invested in de-extinction and it's all very much a thought exercise, which means that we can think about whatever we want at this point. And when it comes down to it, are probably the first species that are going to be targeted of this kind of effort are going to be the ones that some rich guy somewhere is most interested in. And which, uh, which, which species are that uh, rich guy most interested in? I don't know, because I'm not that rich guy. But, uh, you know, I think that when, when I talk to people, the species that most comes up most frequently is the mammoth, which is why I called the book How to Clone a Mammoth. And I think the reason that people select a mammoth is because we can't bring back dinosaurs. And mammoths are the next best thing. Um, before looking at your book, I guess I just assumed that the goal of de-extinction or, or, like, or bringing back a mammoth was, was just to have a mammoth, but it's really much more than that. I think it depends who you ask what the goal of de-extinction is. Some people probably want to bring back a mammoth just to have a mammoth back, but I don't think that that is a sufficiently compelling reason to, to try to do this. I think that when if we are really going to use this technology to try to bring back a species that's gone, or at least traits of those species that are gone, because as I argue, it's not ever going to be possible to bring something back that's 100% identical to something that's gone. But if we are going to make this decision to go down this road, then we really do need to have some more compelling ecological or ethical or even, you know, um, economic reasons for wanting to bring them back. Let's, uh, let's dive into the technology bit with you, with you bringing that up. So you just said that we're not going to get something that's uh, 100% uh, identical. 
Now, the title of your book is How to Clone a Mammoth, um, but that's a little misleading, I guess. So could you explain to everyone why that is? Yeah, I suppose I should have called it um, the technologies by which someone might consider using to bring a mammoth back if it were technically and ethically and ecologically feasible, which it's not. But that's much less much less compelling title, really. Yeah, so cloning is actually a very specific scientific technology that requires taking a living cell from an animal and tricking that cell into forgetting all of the instructions necessary to be that particular type of cell. And you can do this with uh, any sort of tissue cell, a skin cell, or in the case of the most famous clone, Dolly the sheep, that was a mammary cell that was used. They took that a particular cell, living cell, from a living individual and um, insert the genetic material from that cell into an egg that it had its own genetic material removed. And then the proteins in that egg surface were able to trick that cell to convince it to revert into a very early state, an embryonic stem cell state, where it then had the capacity to divide and become all the different types of cells that make up an organism, brain cells and heart cells and skin cells and hair cells. Normally, a regular cell, a, a cell that already has a specific job, can't do that. But cloning, this process of cloning tricks that cell into being able to become every type of cell that makes up an organism. When an animal or a plant is dead, the cells, the material within them, the genetic material within them starts to break down almost immediately after death. First because of enzymes and other chemicals that are inside the body, chopping up the DNA into smaller and smaller fragments. And then also because of things like radiation from the sun and water and oxygen. All these things act on these cells to break the DNA down into smaller and smaller fragments. When something's been dead and extinct for a long time, like a mammoth, there is never ever, no matter how hard you look in the most frozen and wonderful places in the world, there is never going to be a living mammoth cell that's found. And as long as there's no living cell, we cannot clone it. There is a, uh, you mentioned this book as well, there is a, a Japanese team, though, that is working on cloning. What, what's their take well, on they this? They are working on trying to find a living cell, yes. And they're going to continue to be working on this for a long time because they're not going to find one. <laughs> um, can you then explain to us the process that you think is most likely to lead to results? Um, there is a team of researchers in Harvard, led by George Church's lab, that are looking at uh, how they might use genome engineering technologies. The idea there would be to do what's kind of simplistically a cut and paste job throughout the genome. So you have a bunch of different sequences from Asian elephants, and Asian elephants are the closest living relative of mammoths, and a bunch of different sequences from mammoths. And you can start to use these to make a list of what's different. Where are Asian elephants one type of thing and mammoths something else? And then we can take that list and use this genome editing technology and swap out bits of the elephant genome for the mammoth version of these important genes that we've identified as being different between the two species. So this group in Harvard has identified 14 genes mostly associated with uh, the ability to live in colder environments. So elephants are tropically adapted and mammoths, woolly mammoths, like to live in very cold places. So they've selected 14 genes where ev Asian elephants and mammoths are different from each other in some important way that we believe makes mammoths better able to live in cold environments, and then use this cut-and-paste genome editing technology to cut out the elephant version of those cells, 
of those genomes from elephant cells growing in a dish in a lab and paste the mammoth version of those genes in the place. So what they have are cells growing in a dish in a lab that are mostly Asian elephant DNA and they are Asian elephant cells but contain 14 genes, very tiny proportion of the genome that have been swapped out for the mammoth version of those genes. I guess what, what your book really brought home for me is that we're not getting that exact animal. It's like if we if we bring back a mammoth, it's, it's really just a genetically engineered Asian elephant made to look like a, a mammoth. That's right. And, you know, the, the, it's not just the DNA sequence. Even if we could identify all of the differences between an Asian elephant and a mammoth, and there actually aren't that many. Asian elephants and mammoths shared a common ancestor some four or five million years ago, and they already have about 99% identical genomes, the same as between us and chimpanzees. So if we could identify that last 1%, which translates to something about a million or a million and a half changes that we could make and make them, we could create an elephant cell in a dish that contained pretty much an identical sequence to an extinct mammoth, or at least a, a good chance at being an identical sequence to a mammoth. But then we would have to somehow turn that cell into a living, breathing organism. And there we have another set of complicating factors. We would presumably have to do IVF on an elephant with a developing embryo, which we don't know how to do yet. And ethically is probably a terrible idea. Elephants fare really poorly in captivity and I'm not clear. In fact, I'm, I'm completely clear that we shouldn't be doing this at this point until we can learn much more about how to treat elephants ethically in in captive breeding environments. But even if we were able to do that, we would then have an embryo developing inside an elephant and it would be exposed to an elephant's diet and its elephant mom hormones. And we know now that we are much more than the sequence of the A's, C's, G's, and T's that make up our DNA code. We are that genome in context of uh, the environment in which we live. And the influence of that environment begins prenatally. We know now a lot more about how the developing environment before birth can affect the way that our genes express and the way we look and act later in life. Um, we also know that once that animal is born, it will be exposed to an elephant diet and live with elephants and raised by elephants and how this elephant-like environment will affect this thing that supposedly is genetically a mammoth is something that we don't know. But we can be pretty sure that it won't end up being 100% identical to a mammoth that used to be alive. Yeah, you um, you talk about uh, also the this interesting the process. I mean, it's one thing just to, just this this initial stage of de-extincting the animal, but then like raising them in captivity and and releasing them into the wild poses its own set of problems. Every species that's been suggested as a, a potential candidate for de-extinction has different technical challenges associated with both phase one and phase two, that process of taking that edited cell and turning it into an organism, and also different ethical challenges and then different ecological challenges if we were to bring them back. For many of these species, for example, the habitat in which they lived before they went extinct is gone. And so what would we do? Where would we put these things? What would the point of bringing them back actually be? And to my mind, bringing these animals back to stick them in a zoo and look at them is not really good enough. And we can't say that scientifically we want to bring them back and look at them because they're not going to be the same thing as that animal that used to exist. So that's, to my mind, also not a sufficiently compelling reason to want to do this. To me, if there is an ecological reason, if restoring such a species to the environment is going to establish interactions between species that have been missing since the extinction, then that might be a compelling reason to 
bring them back, assuming that bringing them back won't actually cause more ecological damage than whatever we're trying to restore. I'm not sure, really, that there are any extinct species that I can get behind as far as really wanting to bring them back to life. Do we even have the space remaining to put these animals? Depends on what animal you're talking about. If you're talking about a mammoth, I mean, these are big animals, but maybe there's place in Siberia where we can put them. There's this Russian scientist, Sergei Zimov, who's been buying land around his home near Chersky in northeastern Siberia that he calls Pleistocene Park. And he would like to see mammoths brought back so he can release them into this habitat that he's created and, and so far begun to populate with living herbivores like bison and horses and deer. If you're talking about a passenger pigeon, these are birds that went extinct about 100 years ago that lived across the east coast and central plains of North America. There is really no sufficient and survival habitat for these birds. They flocked in billions of individuals. If we brought back a billion birds, we would have to worry about where they would eat, what they would eat, what species they would compete with, how annoying they would be to people if they were to suddenly fly overhead and block out the sunlight for many hours or even days at a time, as the historical records indicate that they did. So again, for each species, there are different challenges, and finding enough space to bring them back is certainly an important one. You uh, you ask uh, a really interesting question in your book that got me thinking, and uh, you you asked uh, if oh, will improving rather than protecting species become the new objective in biodiversity conservation? Can you unpack that question a little bit for us? I think that's a little bit overstating things. I don't believe that it will become a new objective in biodiversity conservation. I think there are a lot of really critical and important improvements to the way that we approach diversity conservation right now. And my argument is that this technology could become yet another weapon in what should be a growing arsenal against the extinction crisis that we're facing today. We have a lot of power powerful approaches to try to conserve things. But what's alarmingly becoming more and more clear is that what we're doing is just not enough. Um, There is, we are playing extinction triage right now. There are species that are disappearing because of growing human population, changes in our agricultural practices, etc. And we need to do something to stop this if we want to live in a world that is full of diversity. I don't think that de-extinction is going to replace the strategies that are in place today for biodiversity, but I do think that it could provide a potential new tool, a new way to approach these things. If we could use this technology to help speed up the process of adaptation. Let's say we want to create elephants that can live in a colder place. Maybe we could use this technology to swap out a few of those genes and make elephants better able to adapt to cooler climates, potentially expanding the range of habitat that's available to them right now while we do what we can to try to save their native habitat. If that kind of process is to be used, then I think this is a much more appropriate, I mean, we we can't create mammoths, but we can probably at some point, presumably we can get through some of these other problems with phase two and the ethical challenges associated with elephants in captivity. It's much more feasible to imagine a scenario where we could create elephants that are better adapted to living in the cold. Where do you see the technology at the moment i mean are you optimistic that this is a is is, is on the horizon thing or you think we do have quite a bit of work to get to before we give can we before we can have uh, cold adapted elephants wandering around 
Again, it really depends on what species you're talking about. And there are different technical, ethical, and ecological challenges facing each one of these candidate species. For elephants, it really is the ethics of raising them in captivity. If we can come up with ways of better meeting the physical and psychological needs of elephants, then maybe this technology is possible with elephants. We have the mammoth genome sequence. We can start to identify the genes. We can swap out the genes. genes. But now what we need is a way of actually creating healthy animals that have these different adaptations. For birds, like passenger pigeons or moa or any of the extinct or endangered birds we're talking about, um, we have other technical challenges. The process of cloning, where you take a living cell and turn it into an embryo and implant it into a surrogate host, is not actually possible with birds. So this is a different and uh, different technical challenge, out, which is quite separate from the ethical and ecological challenges associated with each thing. So um, is it possible? I think for for some species where we know more about what's going on, we know a lot about, about small mammals because we've used mice and rats as lab organisms for a long time. If there are mice and rats, like little kangaroo rats that live across the desert plains in the southwestern U.S., that we would like to use this technology to engineer and potentially give a genetic booster shot to help them uh, fight the climate changes that are going on and destroying their habitat, then we're probably much closer to doing that than we are to creating genetically modified birds or bringing mammoths back to life. If we de-extinct dead animals, what are the chances of reviving the, the pathogens that killed them as well? pretty small. The the problem with ancient DNA, or DNA that we can isolate from any of these extinct organisms' bones, is that it tends to be fragmented into really tiny pieces. And just like there are no living cells in these organisms, there are also going to be no living pathogens. And we're not actually trying to piece together pathogen genomes and, and actually artificially, synthetically create these pathogen genomes. So it would be very difficult, near impossible, to revive some extinct virus that was living separately outside of the genomes of these organisms. That's, I think, the least of one of the one of the smallest concerns in this whole process. If you um, if a team uh, releases a, a, a genetically modified animal into the environment, and I guess this is a, a common concern across all GMO uh, things, is how do you ensure this reproductive isolation between this new group and the uh, unengineered population? You can't. Um, you absolutely can't. And there, we can't even ensure reproductive isolation between things that we believe are species that should be reproductively isolated. If you look around the world today, the more genome sequences that we see being published, the more we realize that this idea of species is really a, a human construct. Brown bears and polar bears, we would all say, are very clearly different species. And yet when their ranges overlap, they produce offspring that are viable and fertile and themselves produce offspring. We, we would like to think, are a different species than Neanderthals. But we now know from looking at the genome sequences that when our two species overlapped, we reproduced and produced viable and fertile offspring. And those of us that are not sub-Saharan African in origin all have Neanderthal ancestors. So I don't know. There's not going to be possible to stop the interaction, the, the hybridization between two things that can hybridize in nature. But I'm not sure that we need to. Uh, in the end of your book, I, I really saw it more as uh, an introduction to the world of genetically modified animals than, than as a, a, a sort of on cloning or on de-extinction. And it really kind of opened up this idea that sooner or later we will have genetically modified animals wandering around. 
We already have genetically modified animals wandering around. The first time our species started messing with the process of evolution was about 30,000 years ago when we took gray wolves and turned them into what would eventually become Great Danes and Chihuahuas. We're just doing it a little bit more quickly now and more directly by knowing what genes we want to change and actually going in using this genome editing technology and making those changes. I think that um, a lot of the fear about genetically modified organisms is just based on not really being able to quantify risk associated with it and it being this kind of crazy idea, crazy technology that we don't really understand yet. But we are a very large population and if we want to maintain the size of our population, we're going to have to come to learn to accept and even embrace genetically modified organisms in particular crops. Uh, my final question, which is a question that you ask yourself in the book, is how do you determine the success of de-extinction? Is it when an animal is, has 10% of the DNA of the original or 50% or 80%? For you, how do you determine the success of de-extinction? To me, um, the compelling ecological reason that you might want to bring back a trait or a species is the mark of success. If you have successfully reestablished interactions between organisms in an environment, and to my mind, the goal there would be to save living ecosystems and protect living species rather than to bring something back that's already gone. If you can accomplish that, then that to me is success. Beth Shapiro, I, I know you're very, very busy this morning, and I, I really appreciate the time you've taken. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. You have been listening to Associate Professor Beth Shapiro talk about bringing things that totally died back from not being totally dead. You also heard me, Craig Barfoot, asking her questions. Thanks for listening to our conversation. See ya.